Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. This will give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have your Word to guide and direct us, that we have been uh, you have your instruction revealed to us and that this has been preserved down through the ages. We're thankful that we have God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and fills us, and he is the one who uh, works in and through us in helping us as we study, as we listen, as we focus upon your word to understand these principles and concepts and to apply them into our own lives so that we can grow and mature, knowing that as uh, Peter wrote, that we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. And it is only on the basis of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to grow spiritually and to uh, advance to spiritual maturity, which is where uh, real spiritual life uh, exists. Father, we pray now that as we study your word this evening that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, and I want to wrap up a little bit tonight what we are focusing on in terms of hope, hope being actually the end product as expressed in Romans 5, uh, 3 through 5 in this expression of the process of spiritual growth. As I'll point out when we go to some corollary passages, this isn't an, sort of an absolute formula. We have a tendency to look at some things at times and say, well, that's an absolute formula. Yet there are several places in Scripture where th- this uh, very similar process is described and they overlap, but these I don't think should be taken as um, as rigid uh, steps. We'll see how the overlap fits together and you'll understand what I mean uh, by the time we're, we, we're finished. Uh, I, I started down that rabbit trail earlier today and worked through that for a while and decided that was a dead end and uh, had to back up and retrench. So uh, we wanted to make sure we understand how the scriptures uh, present the spiritual life and the process of spiritual growth. In Romans 5.2, Paul says, Through whom, that is to Christ, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That is now an introduction and foreshadowing to the uh, spiritual life, which he doesn't get into full bore until chapter 6. Actually, chapter 5 sets up 
chapter 6, which is where he begins the main section dealing with spiritual life and spiritual growth. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, first use of hope. And not only that, but we also glory or uh, exalt in tribulation or adversity, knowing or because we know that adversity produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we began to look at hope because hope is the end of the product, uh, as expressed here. We began to look at that in uh, a couple of weeks ago in terms of how Paul uh, talks about hope in just the epistle of the Romans, pointing out that uh, almost... Uh, uh, or more than a third of the uses of hope in the New Testament are in Romans. So the believer's hope, and uh, we looked at it there, pointing out that hope is not mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit, but it is a mental attitude of confidence that's developed in the believer through the application of Scripture so that we can endure through trials. We might say that hope is faith on steroids because there's a close relationship between these uh, two concepts. So hope is based on a past promise of a future reality. So just as faith uh, grabs hold of a promise, so hope focuses on the future fulfillment of that promise. Faith precedes hope. Hope builds on what faith originally grabs hold of, and then it is it looks at it with a greater degree of confidence so that hope provides the believer with confidence in a future reality that is so certain that it strengthens and toughens the believer's mentality today uh, to face, fight, and surmount unpleasant circumstances with a mentality of joy in the midst of difficulty. Years ago, there was uh, a book uh, by a couple of Christian psychologists. Uh, They were both professors at Dallas Seminary at the time. I had both of them. And that was back in a time when uh, a lot of uh, a lot of Christians, a lot of a lot of uh, pastors were wrestling with what is the relationship between the Bible and psychotherapy. Uh, unfortunately, the biblicists have lost that battle uh, for the most part in uh, terms of evangelicalism. And part of the reason is that a lot of Christians, even Christian theologians, just can't get past the the, uh, the camouflage of biblical terminology and a lot of biblical principles that do show up in uh, the better models of so-called Christian uh, Christian psychology. Uh, if you have questions about why I've made those statements, you can go back and listen to some of the uh, lectures by Martin Bobgan that we had at the uh, Chafer Conference about five years or so ago, 2000 maybe 2006 or 2007, I don't remember which year it was, and come to understand that the Bible teaches that we can face and surmount any problem in life. Now, I'm not talking about biochemical problems. I'm not talking about problems that are medically based with a, in terms of a, uh, uh, some kind of physiological or uh, 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 genetic-based dis- disorder. 
I'm talking about the problems that many people face in life, even problems of depression, problems with the various emotions and things of that nature. God says that we can surmount those things by using his word. And it's not easy, though. And we live in a world today where people want it to be easy and they don't want to really grab hold of the uh, uh, grab hold of the victor's wreath of being able to face and surmount the difficulties of life on the basis of God's word. We want things to be easy. We are a spoiled generation. And it is just amazing how uh, what the statistics are in terms of the, uh, for lack of a better word, infantilism of Western civilization adults. We realize that more Americans under the age of 50 watch the cartoon channel than CNN or Fox News. That's because we have created a culture that has idealized adolescence. And now, according to recent studies, adolescence doesn't end until you're 34. And that's, that, that's based on the fact that we have created a culture that has so idolized the teenage years. By the way, a teenager didn't enter into the uh, lexicon of the English language until guess when? Anybody got an idea? 1941. 1941. 19, well, the book I read this morning said 41. Okay, somewhere in there. 19... 40, roughly the beginning of World War, I, World War II. Before then, you went from being a child, and then somewhere around puberty, you became an adult with all of the responsibilities that went along with that. And you never went through this period of adolescence. Now you go through adolescence, teenage years, and starts with puberty at about 11 or 12, and goes until you're 34. And so people want to... Dra- the, the teenage fashion sets the standard, sets the pattern for... Adults, and so adults that are uh, that want to talk like teenagers, talk like children, act like children, they don't want to assume the responsibilities. And yet what, what Paul outlines for the for Scripture, what Paul outlines for the spiritual life, and what the other writers of Scripture do as well, is that life begins when you become an adult. Life doesn't begin when you become a teenager. Life begins when you become an adult and can handle the responsibilities of adulthood, and part of the responsibilities of adulthood is learning how to face the realities and the and the difficulties and the adversities of life, and utilize the tools that God has given us to face and surmount those difficulties. And when we wrap ourselves in a cloak of, of fantasy, and we are divorced from reality because we're living in a uh, an unreal world. Where we put all of our focus on, you know, basically a, a, a teenager's view of, of life and reality, then we're doomed to failure. And when you create a whole culture that's based on that, then you know there's very little hope for the survival of that culture or that civilization, which is where we are in terms of Western civilization. Uh, life begins when you take on the responsibilities of being an adult. I think back on when I was uh, a kid, you grow up and say, I just wish my parents would treat me like an adult. The People still say that, but what they mean is, practically speaking, I want to be treated like an adolescent. 
But we need to learn what it means to be an adult. And being an adult means to face life with the, uh, with the principles that, uh, that face, the, face the world, face the uh, situations in the world in terms of reality, not in terms of some utopian dream, uh, not in terms of some adolescent fantasy, not trying to uh, recapture something we think we missed when we were 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age. It's amazing how many, how many people, when they hit uh, certain stages in life, and it's, for some it's 40, for others it's 60, for others it's 70, and they start acting, uh, trying to act out on uh, uh, missed um, opportunities to fulfill adolescent fantasies when they were, when they were young. And it's just, it's just a sign of immaturity, a sign that they've never grown up. They're just caught in a teenage trap. How horrible. Anyway, Scripture's clear that we have to develop this sort of mental attitude in, in hope. It's, it's based on a confidence, based on a future reality. One of the things I did as I was looking at this and sort of wrestling with some different, uh, different ideas based on, I don't need to go into all of that, but just based on some stuff that I had run across is dealing with the whole issue of virtue because what we're talking about here are all uh, virtues. And a virtue is a moral excellence. It's a character quality. And down through the ages in extra-biblical literature from Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics, and he basically reflected Plato before him who reflected Sophocles, and on up into the Middle Ages, different philosophers have defined and categorized virtues in different ways. And some people have different virtues. In the Middle Ages, they took the four, um, the four classic virtues and they added three uh, Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love to them. But then you have other people who talk about the virtue of hard work. Well, wait a minute, that's not part of the classic four. And how do you distinguish that uh, a moral quality or a character quality from a virtue? It gets really nebulous and confusing. And the Bible doesn't classify it that way. In fact, we look at various lists, which is part of what we're doing this evening. We look at various lists like the one we'll look at at the at the conclusion tonight in Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, virtue is just listed as part, arete, the Greek word, is just listed as part of these moral qualities. It's not set apart as a distinct quality. That comes out of Greek philosophy, but that's not how uh, the Bible looks at this. It looks The Bible instead looks at a range of behaviors that may be uh, necessary for developing moral excellence, but even moral excellence is included within that process of, uh, of spiritual maturation and character development. So anyway, I was looking at some things this last uh, couple of days, and one of the things I discovered was that within the field of ethics, now I'm not talking about the biblical study of ethics. Some of this may have to do with Christian philosophers dealing with uh, <clears throat> developing uh, different uh, uh, elements of, uh, of ethics and, and standards and how to teach ethics and inculcate ethics into, into people. And there's about three schools of thought. Uh, only two of them uh, concern us this evening. One is a school of thought that the way you teach ethics is you teach the list of don't do this and don't do that. Uh, that has been viewed as a failure by contemporary, some contemporary ethicists, 
And so another group came along that emphasized virtue character that rather than teaching a grocery list of do's and don'ts, what you do is you inculcate character into individuals and into children as they grow up so that when they hit a certain ethical problem, rather than thinking in terms of, of a list of do's and don'ts, they make a decision from a an inculcated character that is virtuous. And so and there's a lot of value in uh, in looking at that. But one of the elements that they've stumbled across, because remember all empirical knowledge always has some element of truth to it and some element of falsehood to it because man being finite in his knowledge is always coming to know more and more things. And so they're going to get certain things right and certain things wrong. But one of the things that this, another thing besides the idea that uh, ethics should be taught in terms of character formation uh, first and foremost, but but uh, the other thing is the recognition that uh, that for there to be real character development, a person must live in light of his purpose. And so there's a teleology that is part of this uh, virtue character type of ethics that they have to understand where they're going and, and make decisions today in light of a, uh, a long-term reference point. Well, that's not any different from what the Bible teaches in terms of the fact that as we mature, we come to understand the confidence, the hope, that future reality that God has for us, and we begin to le- learn to live today and make decisions today in light of of our destiny in light of where God is taking us in his plan, which isn't just limited to here and now on this planet, but in terms of our future uh, destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in his in the millennial kingdom. And so uh, they've discovered that. And as I like to say, a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. And so they have uh, there's an element of truth there. I just thought that was interesting that uh, that that has developed in in recent years in terms of ethics. So this is what we're looking at here in this third point, this third summary, is that hope provides the believer with a confidence of a future reality that becomes so certain in our thinking that it impacts how we face and fight and surmount challenges today. second thing we did was we went beyond Romans to Paul's use of the word hope in other uh, other epistles, and discovered that, yes, indeed, he says basically the same thing that, that he does in Romans. And then <clears throat> I still had a couple of passages I wanted to look at when we finished last time, and I want to look at those uh, today. These are from the non-Pauline writings in the New Testament. <clears throat> and remember, Hebrews and First uh, and Second Peter James and Jude, those are, with the exception of Jude, those are the books we're going to be looking at in terms of non-Pauline uh, writings to, uh, this evening. Those were all written to primarily Jewish Christian audiences. So these in the early church, uh, pr- more than half of the Christians, especially in the earlier you go, the greater the percentage of Jews there were, but even throughout Asia Minor and other areas, uh, because the modus operandi of the apostles was to go to the synagogue first, and then from there those who uh, became converts, those who trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, established other other churches. So uh, these were written to primarily uh, uh, Jewish Christian audiences. 
Now, hope is used in, in about <clears throat> four passages in Hebrews, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7, and Hebrews 10. And it has the same idea of a confident expectation, a future that is so certain that it impacts uh, present reality. Uh, for example, in Hebrews 3, verse 6, and you might want to turn with me because I'll make a couple of references to uh, context as we look at each of these verses just so we make sure we understand what they're saying and not just uh, pulling the verse out of context. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is is <clears throat> shifting, has shifted, and is in the process of shifting to a focus on on challenging the Christians that he's writing to not to give up in the face of pressure, not to give up on their spiritual life in the face of, of ad- adversity, specifically uh, persecution. They're Jewish believers. Many believe that, um, I think there's good evidence for it, that these were former priests in in Israel. And I believe that the, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a former priestly Levitical community within in Judea that is coming under a certain amount of persecution and opposition and hostility from uh, Jews who were not uh, believers in Jesus as Messiah. And so they're, they're, they're at a point where they want to give up. So you have the same kind of situation we're talking about in Romans 5. You have a situation of external adversity and pressure and the the temptation to just chunk your Christianity and go with the flow and be like the culture around you rather than holding firm to the truth. And so the the comparison that the writer of Hebrews sets up here is the with the failure of the Exodus generation to truly trust in God once they had been redeemed from Egypt uh, once they were out in the wilderness, they, uh, instead of trusting in God and looking forward to the promised land, which is the focal point here of, um, of this passage, this is their, their future, this was their destiny, this is what is referred to as the re- their rest, uh, which would come once they entered the land that God had provided for them. And so the writer of Hebrews is warning them not to give up because if they, if, if the the, the, those to whom he is writing give up, they're going to miss out on their role and responsibility in the future rest of the millennial kingdom. And, uh, and they'll be like these, like the, uh, uh, Exodus believers who failed to persevere and endure in the wilderness and they gave up and they let the pressure of the negative external circumstances cause them to turn away from the promise of God and focus back on the leeks and the garlics in Egypt. They wanted to go back where they they had convinced themselves life was really easier under slavery than it is out here trusting in God. And remember, every day God provided enough food for them in terms of uh, manna. He provided uh, 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 for their clothing. Their clothing never wore out during the entire 40 years they were in the wilderness. Their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years during the wilderness. God provided plenty of water for them, and yet they were ungrateful, and they rejected God's provision and were turning back to uh, want to go back to, to Egypt. And so there's always that that testing. And so as we, as the writer of Hebrews comes to the end of his second main instructional section 
in verse 6, there's a, there's a comparison between Moses in Hebrews 3, 5, who was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, remember we are a temple, both individually and corporately, a temple to God, that's the idea of house here, uh, the Christ is son of his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, this isn't a warning that if you don't hold fast, you're going to be kicked out of the house. You're going to be, or you're going to lose salvation, let me put it that way. Uh, it's not that you're going to lose salvation because the house here is comparable to the temple and serving in the temple and a future role that we as believers are going to have is serving and ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And if we are failures in the Christian life in this life and we lose rewards and uh, which is the uh, presentation of privileges and responsibilities of the judgment seat of Christ uh, that we will have and those positions we'll have in the millennial kingdom. If we fail to endure, then what happens is we're going to lose out on those rewards and we will be just like the uh, Exodus generation of, of uh, Israelites that failed to enter into the promised land. Were they still going to be saved? Sure they were. Were they still freed from the slavery in Egypt? Sure they were. But because of disobedience to God, they failed to be able to realize all the blessings that God had promised to them, and that was left for another generation. So that's the warning that it's here. We need to hold fast to the confidence and rejoice in the hope that is given to us. The Greek word that is translated confidence there is the word uh, uh, paresia, which has to do with openness or boldness. Same word the user, we can now come boldly before the throne of grace. And so it has that idea of, of a robust confidence in our future destiny. So because of that, we're able to uh, hold firm to the end. In Hebrews 6, just Turn over a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 6. This is in one of the those passages that everybody loves to ask questions about because on the surface it appears as if this is a warning again that if one does not uh, persevere or endure or if one falls away, then there are those who teach that this this indicates that you can lose your salvation or maybe you were never saved to begin with. That's the uh, lordship variation on it. But the reality is in Hebrews 6 that the writer is talking about believers, those who have trusted in Jesus as Messiah. And he says, starting in verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. And that idea of becoming enlightened, when you do a word study on on uh, <clears throat> fotizo there, which is the Greek word for enlightenment, it indicates somebody who has become a believer. This happens, uh, we studied this last week when we looked at Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, that having been enlightened, we uh, Paul is praying that uh, having once been enlightened, that uh, the eyes of our soul would be open, the eyes of our understanding would be open to understand what is the knowledge of God's will. And so it's based on the fact that by the perfect tense participle there of a previous completed action of uh, enlightenment. So that's a phrase that clearly indicates 
someone who's saved. The next, having tasted the heavenly gift. It doesn't mean just tasting in the sense of just sampling something, just in, in getting a hint of what it, uh, <clears throat> what it tastes like, but uh, completely uh, chewing it, eating it, taking it in, making it a part and assimilating it, making it a part of your, uh, of your, your body. And so this, again, is a word indicating that they are truly saved. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, another word that indicates a complete participation with the Holy Spirit. Taste of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Uh, if they fall away, that is, if you reject what God has given you, if you reject what God has given you, then um, uh, you, there, there reaches a point of no return. Uh, not because God's grace isn't there, but because a, a person can, after a person has rejected grace for so long and pursues carnality, it hardens the heart, hardens the soul to a point where, practically speaking, they will not turn back. They will not recover. They will not reverse course and go back because they've reached in a point of their own perversion uh, a point, and their own decline, a point of no return. And so it's in that context in verse, verse 11 that Paul says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't be overcome by negative circumstances. Don't, don't let yourself give in to thoughts that are basically generated by self-absorption and self-pity, then those are always generated by a false view of reality. They're based on false expectations. A lot of people just uh, have wrong expectations about life. They think life is going to be, be wonderful, and they, they think that there's not going to be any difficulty or any, any uh, uh, heartache in life, and they, they have this uh, utopic view of reality that gets uh, shipwrecked on the, on the shoals of reality. And if, if, you're, if you're a biblical Christian, you understand that this is the devil's world and that there are going to be bad things that happen to good people because we live in the devil's world, not because God's out of control or has lost control, but that bad things happen because for the time being, God is allowing his creatures to have exercise free will. And in the exercise of free will, they're going to make bad decisions and they're going to experience the consequences of those bad decisions. And sometimes those consequences pile up uh, one bad consequence upon another until you create a, a, just a systemic uh, mess. And then in the midst of that systemic mess, we're trying to live and have a measure of stability, but chaos has been the result of, of millions of people making bad decisions and compounding bad decisions. And then we say, well, why did God let this happen? And we blame God rather than recognizing that the reason things happen the way they are is as a result of all, uh, uh, just a, a, a plethora of bad decisions on the part of of uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of, of people. And so it's not God's fault. God is allowing creatures to be free. And to allow a person to be free means that they're going to, you have to allow them to make bad decisions. You can't just allow them to be free and make good decisions. Only if you're a, buy into a liberal utopic view of reality. And, and, and that's there. Uh, because when, when you don't believe 
when you don't believe that, that there is evil and you don't believe that there is real, um, uh, uh, real evil and real depravity in the world and you have a, a somewhat utopic view that, that, that reality can be improved upon and perfected, then, uh, then what happens is that you're not going to make plans that take into account for the real horrors that occur in history, horrors that have occurred. Uh, sometimes they're natural disasters. Sometimes they're disasters caused by evil human beings, disasters such as uh, uh, the Holocaust, disasters such as Pearl Harbor, disasters such as uh, 9-11. And the way, the only way you can explain that is because God has given man freedom. And freedom means that God's not going to step in and say, okay, you made that bad decision. I'm not going to let anything bad, no, no bad consequences from that. Uh, if you're going to allow people to experience the benefits of success from good decisions, you've got to allow them to, to, to experience just the opposite or it's not freedom. And so the corollary of freedom is that people are going to make bad decisions and they're going to experience the consequences of that. And so when we face that from the vantage point of God's word, we have reality. And we can understand that uh, God is still in control and that the end game is going to be good. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good. God works them together for good. It doesn't say that all things are good, but that God in his sovereignty is going to bring his plan together at the end. And when we are in heaven and we have that eternal perspective, we're going to look at what happened and we're going to say, that was that was good. That was right. It couldn't have been and shouldn't have been any other way, because when it all comes together, this is what brings about the glorification of God and the vindication of God's character and his plan in the angelic conflict. So in uh, uh, Hebrews 6.11, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't give up. Develop a mental attitude of toughness, not toughness in, in terms of the, the world, which is just toughness for its own sake, but it's a toughness because you understand reality and your your. Uh, you're dependent upon God. And then another use in chapter 6 is down in verse 18. And there, just pick up the context in verse 17, thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that is in reference to the promise made to Abram in the Old Testament, uh, determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. There's the analogy. Just as Abraham was able to face situations in his life because of the promise of God and when he grasped the hope of the future fulfillment of God's promise, then he could face the challenges of life in front of him. That's the same thing that, that we have. Then we go to uh, Hebrews 7.19. Uh, for the law made nothing perfect. That is, the Mosaic law could not accomplish perfection. That wasn't its purpose. Its purpose wasn't to show you could be perfectly righteous because no one ever kept the law. Even today, no one can keep the law. That shows that we're incapable of keeping the law because no one ever did it. It's not to show that we can do it, but to show we can't do it. And since we can't do it, God has to do it for us, and that's why he's provided a Savior. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. 
That's Jesus Christ. He has a better promise, promise of eternal life, because he has paid the penalty for sin. And uh, so we have that confidence, that expectation of eternity with God, through which, that is through that hope, that promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ, we draw near to God. And then uh, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. So the focal point is not on faith in faith. It's not on faith in the fact that it should all just work out good. It's not faith in some abstract principle. It is faith in the one who promised. It's not even faith in the promise. Because what makes the promise uh, valid, what makes it solid, what makes it something we can depend on is the dependable character of, of God who is behind the promise. And so these these verses give us a focal point on understanding faith. Now, the next uh, place where we see the word hope is in is in 1 Peter. And we have several passages in 1 Peter where he uses the word hope. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. And that's a comparison in this embedded comparison here between the hope that is living. It's not a dead hope. It's not a hope based in some optimistic wish. It's not a hope based in feeling or emotion. It's not a hope based in something that can change. It is a hope that's based on a living reality, the reality that Jesus Christ rose physically and bodily from the grave. And that's what changed the disciples. They were a bunch of cowards running and hiding from the Roman soldiers and from the Jewish officials uh, when Jesus was arrested. And after the crucifixion, they all went into hiding, and they had uh, absolutely no no courage whatsoever. They, They did not want to follow him to the cross, and so they all ran and hid. But then two days later, when Jesus rose from the dead... Then they saw him, and it changed him. And all but one that we that I know of, all but one died a martyr's death. John is the only apostle who died from uh, just natural causes from old age. All of the others gave their life for the belief that Jesus Christ rose physically and bodily from the grave because they saw him. Now, if you're a coward, you're not going to give your life for a lie. Maybe one of them might, but 10 of them, no. They gave their life, they gave their life for what they knew to be true because they had seen him in his uh, bodily, with, they saw the nail prints in his hands and the uh, spear wound in his side and knew that he had uh, been raised from the dead. So it's a living hope, just as Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. And so this is a living, confident expectation that we will be raised from the dead, and just as Christ had victory over death, 1 Corinthians 15, we will have victory over death. In 1 Peter 1.21, we read, "...who through him, that is through Christ, believe in God, who raised him from the dead." Again, it is a correlation between that confidence of our future resurrection in the presence of God in a physical bodily resurrection and Christ's resurrection from the dead. God who raised him from the dead, he gave him glory so that your faith and hope 
are in God. It's in him and his character and what and understanding what he has done in history. It's not like you see in the movies when uh, after uh, Jesus has been crucified and the apostles come together and they're uh, fearful and all of a sudden they hear this disembodied voice. That's not how it was. It wasn't something in their head. It wasn't a psychological resurrection. It, they, they, they didn't say, oh, well, like you hear at some funerals, well, they're, they're always going to live because they live inside me. That's not what the Bible teaches, Old Testament or New Testament. They're alive because they're alive. They have a new physical but immortal body, an incorruptible body that will never fade away. And this is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ who conquered death. It's not just a psychological living. It's not pumping yourself up thinking, well, yeah, I can't deal with the fact that, they're, that, that, that I'm never going to see them again and they just disappeared into an existential nothingness. But uh, So I'm just going to make myself feel better by saying, oh, but they'll live inside me. They'll live in my heart. They'll live in my memories. No, that's not what the Bible's talking about. Jesus didn't rise from the dead because the disciples created a new myth that gave them somehow a psychological boost, but because they saw a risen, bodily, resurrected Savior. And there was no doubt in their minds at all. And they all saw it. It wasn't a mass hallucination. And then 1 Peter 3.15 but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, that is, in your mind. The word cardia often refers to the innermost part of man and the thinking part of man. Sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your minds and always be ready to give a defense, that is, always be ready to give a well-thought-out, logical explanation of why you believe what you believe. Be ready to give a defense to everyone or to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. You know what that presupposes? That it's so obvious that you have a living hope that people are going to ask you about it. I won't embarrass anybody by saying, okay, how many people have ever had anybody ask them, why do you have such hope in the face of death? But that's what this is saying. When people ask you why you have this living hope, why are you so hopeful, then you can give a reasoned, logical, articulate answer explaining why you have this hope. Now, some people are going to have a more logical, more reasoned explanation from others. God isn't saying in this verse that uh, be ready to give a defense like Paul would give. He didn't say that. He didn't say be ready to give a, a rational defense of the gospel like John Calvin would give or like Darby would give or like Schofield would give or like you name it, fill in the blank of a good Christian thinker. He just says be ready to give your answer the best you can do. Remember, it's not your explanation that's going to convince them. It's God the Holy Spirit. But we have a responsibility to give the best, most logical, most reasoned answer Uh, to why we have this living hope. So we're back in our passage in Romans 5.2. There's a progression here I want you to notice. We rejoice rejoice, uh, in in, uh, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And that same word that's used there, which is the Greek word uh, uh, kalkaomai, that word 
is used again in verse 3. Usually most uh, translations don't uh, translate it with the same English word. Some will say we glory in hope in verse 2, and then we rejoice uh, in adversities in verse 3, or they change that around, or they'll use another synonym, we boast. Uh, but it's the same word in both places, and it has to do, uh, I think there's a difference between joy using the uh, verb kareo, uh, that there's a uh, difference between that sense, which is more of a mental attitude, stability, it's, it's, it, it, it leans towards this sense of exaltation. But remember, that's not the main idea. When Jesus said, my joy I give you, uh, uh, just a couple hours later, he was being um, he was alone in Gethsemane, and he was in emotional turmoil. Matthew tells us, and, and the pressure upon him to walk away from the cross was so great that he sweated drops of blood. And this can happen only when a pres- uh, person is under tremendous uh, physical uh, pressure, and he was under that pressure, but he didn't fail that pati- that test. He did not become emotional and walk away from it. And so he still had joy, even in the midst of emotional pressure. So joy in the sense of Cairo uh, has that idea of... Uh, of strength and stability of a mindset. But kalkaomai, which is the word we have here, goes beyond that to a a physical exaltation, a a happiness, an exaltation. I mean, this is uh, the basic meaning of this word we find in the the scriptures, that it has this idea of of exaltation, of boasting, of, of praising something, uh, we find that Paul uses the word five times in Romans. Uh, the first two times he uses it, he uses it in a negative sense of, uh, of boasting in the sense of, uh, of a wrong, arrogant attitude. And he uses it to refer to the, uh, those Jewish leaders who boasted in the law. They, they, they asserted their uh, ethnicity and their relationship to Abraham and the fact that they were given the Mosaic law and they, they, they so exalted in their, uh, the position, the blessing, the privilege that God had given them that they were lording it over everyone else. Uh, and so that was how Paul dealt, dealt with it, used boasting in a negative sense in, uh, for example, Romans 2.17. But in Romans 5, he uses it three times. He uses it in 5.2, 5.3, and he uses it again a little later on uh, down in, um, uh, down later in the passage. But in all these places here in Romans 5, he's talking about uh, a positive sense in exalting in hope. We, we're so focused and our thinking has been so transformed by uh, the realization of our destiny that that and it's not something you just make up. You you truly exalt when you hit hard times, when you hit opposition, when you come under that uh, particular pressure. Paul uses the term uh, in a couple of other passages. Uh, one place he quotes from the Old Testament twice. Um, same verse, same statement. First Corinthians one thirty one, and again in Second Corinthians ten seventeen where he summarizes an Old Testament passage. He says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is sort of a summary of what Jeremiah states in Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. 
uh, quoting the Lord, he says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. See, Paul just took all of that and summarized it as boasting in the Lord. And if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord, not in your own effort. Ephesians 2.9 says that we're saved uh, by grace and not by works, uh, lest any man should boast. That's a negative. It's not a focus on what we've accomplished, who we are, or what we have done. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he's dealing with the fact that he's got a, an unexpected and an unpleasant uh, thorn in the flesh. And God brought that adversity, uh, that thlipsis, into his life in order to uh, keep him humble, to teach him not to be arrogant because of the blessings of, of revelation that God had given to uh, to Paul. So he says, I, want to, I will boast rather in my weaknesses that God's power may be manifested in my life. And so boasting in this sense is a positive exaltation. Now, as we look at this verse, uh, specifically verse 3, we see a progression here. We said not only that, but we also rejoice in adversities. That's the Greek word thlipsis, which really means a pressure, is the idea there, some sort of negative external pressure. We rejoice in... Um, and adversities, uh, because we know that adversity, we got a typo there, adversity produces endurance, and endurance character and character confidence or character produces, uh, produces hope. So we have a, <clears throat> this, a stair step progression to spiritual maturity. We hit adversity, and here Paul is looking at it as that which is uh, a, a negative. Uh, thlipsis is the noun. It comes from the verb thlebo, which means to crush, to press, to compress something, to squeeze something. And so it came to be applied to those situations when people are pressed or squeezed by negative external uh, circumstances. And we all face those because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where every day we wake up and we say, I'm going to do these five things today and we get none of them done because of things that interfered. If it was an, an ideal world, we'd get all five things done within the first 30 minutes, and then we could just uh, go down to the beach for the rest of the day. But that's not how life is. And most of the time when we set up the five things that we're going to do today, then uh, things interfere, and the next day we have that same list of five things to accomplish because we live in a fallen world, and we're constantly fighting against reality, which is which is negative, and we're, we deal with negative circumstances, whether they're people and people-oriented problems or whether they are events, and these events have a wide range of sources. They can be events that are generated by the weather. We've had droughts. We've had hurricanes. We've had, uh, I've got some good friends that live over in Birmingham, and they've had horrendous uh, tornadoes 
in the last couple of years. Just unbelievable. Just uh, just in I think it was in January they were out of school for nine days in Birmingham because of all the damage that was done uh, by tornadoes. That doesn't get across too much in our local news, but uh, weather events can cause all kinds of problems in in uh, people's lives. And so adversity can come from many different sources. Adversity can come from health. And we have a number of people in the, in the congregation, people you know in your family, they're dealing with all kinds of health challenges and problems and difficulties. And, and this just it seems to be an interference. We address it that way. So we complain and we gripe rather than saying, well, God's in control, so I need to figure out how this negative circumstance gives me the opportunity to exalt because I know God's using this to produce spiritual growth and uh, spiritual maturity. And so the word uh, thlipsis has to do with that external pressure of adversity that comes. And it's closely related to another Greek word, stenokorea, which occurs a few times in Romans. And in Romans 8.35, it has the idea of narrowness. So here we have this word adversity, thlipsis, pressure, and then another word that relates to it is narrowness, where you just feel squeezed by the circumstances of uh, life, uh, whether it's people or events or, or whatever it might be. And then the next step is that it produces perseverance, or the best word, uh, best translation, is endurance, the ability to hang in there. Hupamene means to abide under something, not to escape it, but to stay in the circumstance but have joy in the midst of the, of the negative, negative pressure. The third step is that it results in a tested or approved character. And this is the noun uh, uh, dokume. And uh, dokume is an interesting word because this also shows up in a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 dealing with the judgment seat of Christ to see whether we have approved character. That's when everything is burned up and those who have gold, silver, and precious stones uh, have approved character. Those who have everything burned up as wood, hay, and straw, well, they're not approved. They are, there's no rewards. They're saved, yet it's through fire, the passage says. So we have uh, uh, tested and approved character. It's been evaluated and has passed the test, and this, in turn, increases our confidence in God. Now, the next passage that I want to look at that connects to this and has another a similar but different uh, uh, series of events is in James 1. Uh, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Here he uses the word kara in the Greek, which is the word related to the verb kairo, meaning, meaning to be joyful. And it's not the same idea, but it's similar to the idea of kalkaomai. Kalkaomai is more of an emotional exaltation that goes with it, whereas kara indicates the solid mental attitude of stability and tranquility and peace and happiness even in the midst of trials. And so Paul says to count it joy when you fall into various trials. And the idea of falling into the trials is you never know what's going to happen. You wake up in the morning and you think everything's laid out for the day and then boom, 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 things domino and it's not at all what you expected. And, and you just fall into those trials. And then the word there for trials is not a word meaning adversity, it's tests. It can be a good situation, a test of prosperity, or a negative situation, which is a test of adversity. 
And so we're able to have joy in the midst of those circumstances because of something, again, because we know that the testing of our faith, see, that brings in the idea that testing there uh, is, is a, the, the Greek word, uh, a verb, or excuse me, a, a, another form of the noun based on dukeme. Um, uh, and so it's, it's that same idea, that testing for approval, not testing to see where we fail, but testing to see where we are, uh, where we're succeeding, the testing of our faith, and that that produces endurance again. There's our word hupomene. But we're to let endurance have a continuing. It leads to something here. It's called, in James' vocabulary, a maturing work is how I translate it uh, from teleos. Uh, the end result would be a better way. The God's intended result uh, might be a way to paraphrase it that you may be perfect, that is, mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I've charted it out, and to compare the two passages this way, in Romans 5, we start with adversity, which is a negative. That leads to endurance. We pass the test. We have approved character, and that increases confidence. In James, James looks at it a slightly different vantage point. We face tests which can be good or bad, and that leads to a testing of the faith, dokimion, which when we pass it, it develops endurance. There's a point of contact in the chain of events in Romans 5, and that leads to what? It leads to God's end result, teleos, which is the maturation process that, that we have. And if you face it and you don't know what to do, God's revealed it to you in his word, and so we need to just pray to God that he will reveal through his word the wisdom that we need in order to handle whatever that adversity is. But we have to ask James 1, 6 in faith, trusting that God will give us the answer, believing his answer, and not be like the one who is double-minded. Um, that's the idea of doubting. It's being, having, being of two minds. That's the person who say, well, I could do it the human viewpoint way or I could do it the divine viewpoint way. I could uh, I could go with psychology and go down and see my uh, psychobabble counselor, or I could apply the promises of God's word. I just don't know what to do. That's being double-minded. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, no double-minded, uh, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. There's no stability there uh, whatsoever. Next time we'll come back and look at the next passage, which is in Second Peter uh, chapter 1 and following, which gives us a different series of events. All of these are describing the same process, just from a slightly different vantage point, emphasizing different elements in our uh, spiritual growth. But they're all based on learning to truly trust in God's Word, understanding that He's taking us through a process like a boot camp in preparing us for a future, a future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's now that we develop that, that uh, character and the, qual the qualities that will be needed to function as leaders in that future environment. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things and to be challenged by them, to recognize that, that life isn't just a bunch of uh, haphazard events, but that you are ultimately in control, giving oversight uh, to the direction of, the, of our lives 
and bringing and allowing things to come into our life that will test our faith and give us opportunities to apply what we know from your word that we can come to understand the reality and the truth of your word and that it would be evidenced as a testimony to those around us and that we might be able then to use that as an opportunity to explain the hope, the confidence that is in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.